This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. One year ago, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, upending abortion access across the country. The day that decision came down, we opened the phones to hear how you were processing. I am distressed, disgusted, and I just have so much disappointment. So long in this country, we've developed this idea that everything we don't like should be prohibited by the Supreme Court. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that the foundations of Roe were very weak, but a certain segment of the population liked the outcome, so let's go for it anyway. I'm 80 years old and lived through the era prior to Roe versus Wade. I had two friends that had unwanted pregnancies. One went through a backstreet butcher and ended up not being able to have children the rest of her life. I grew up in Mississippi, and I went to school in Louisiana at an HBCU. I saw with my own eyes a female use the clothes hanger to end a pregnancy because she didn't have the money or have access to reproductive education. This is egregious. We're really turning back the hands of time. And what about protecting the whole child? How about the hungry child, the homeless child? Now we're two days away from the anniversary of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization ruling. This year, we saw states like Kansas, Ohio, and Indiana reject abortion bans being considered in their states, but 14 others implemented near-total bans. A lot has changed since the decision, including people's opinions about it. There was not the jubilation that I think I may have felt even 10 years prior. Most of that was just my greater understanding of how this decision uh, would impact the lives of so many women, um, including women in my own life. That was a clip from More Perfect, a podcast from WNYC about the Supreme Court. Their new two-part series focuses on the origins of the viability line. That's the legal interpretation of when a fetus can survive outside the womb. This legal line was around 24 weeks as defined by Roe v. Wade. Now that cutoff is whenever the state decides. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists discourages including viability in legislation. The developmental point at which a fetus will survive outside the womb can vary, and it's hard to predict since there's no test or definitive diagnosis to determine it. Both abortion rights advocates and anti-abortion groups have criticized the viability line. With it effectively gone, could something better take its place? I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back after this short break. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. 
In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Joining us from Denver, Colorado, is Julia Longoria. She's the host of the More Perfect podcast. Also with us is Gabrielle Burbe. She's a producer for More Perfect. And Julie Rovner. She's the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thank you all for joining us. Julie, how has the abortion landscape changed in the years since Roe was overturned? Well, things are chaotic. I think both sides would sort of agree. As you mentioned, uh, about 14 states have now banned abortion, as was predicted. Uh, Another half a dozen states have tried to uh, uh, put bans into effect, but they're being blocked by state courts because they are state constitutions that still include a right to to abortion or a right to privacy that encompasses abortion. Um, Another 19 states or so have strengthened their protections for uh, for people to get abortions, but basically we are as exactly as predicted, uh, basic, a country of haves and have-nots when it comes not just to abortion but to reproductive health. We've seen clinics close in a lot of these states with bans, which means not just that women can't get abortions, but that women frequently can't get other types of reproductive health care. We've seen doctors worried about treating women who are losing pregnancies naturally with miscarriages because miscarriage management could be mistaken for an abortion and And uh, doctors could end up either either in court or worse, in jail. So things are quite up in the air right now. Julia, as we said, the Dobbs decision got rid of the viability line. Why was this line an easy target for anti-abortion groups who wanted Roe overturned? Well, you know, in in medicine, viability is a pretty squishy concept. Um, It's hard to predict when a fetus will actually be viable outside of the womb. Um, And so... It became something that, you know, people on opposite ends of the abortion debate, we learned, uh, objected to right away. You know, we talked to uh, abortion doctors who who give, uh, who who provide abortions in the third trimester, um, which, you know, is was very rare once once Roe came out and and was a dangerous job. Um, And they said that the viability line just didn't make sense. Um, You know, if you think about the reason why women have abortions in the thri- third trimester, most of those are wanted pregnancies. They're doing it for, you know, because there's something tragic has happened with their pregnancy. Um, and then, you know, on on the sort of pro-life side, the, you know, the, the problems with the viability line became an easy target. Gabby, how has the viability line shaped how we've thought about abortion as a country? Yeah, something that we found as we talked to legal scholars, um, especially reproductive rights legal scholars, is how much um, the way that the law is talked about and understood um, became something that people just took for granted. So something like viability um, then becomes repeated over and over again in Um, Senate hearings and in um, House committee hearings where people are debating abortion. It's just something that becomes accepted as the line which everyone will agree upon because it was the constitutional line in Roe v. Wade. And we found that, um, you know, majority of Americans came to support the viability line or the 24-week point as the point when, okay, abortion can be legal until without really questioning if it even made sense. 
We'll talk more about the viability line and, and how it came about. But Gabby and Julia, you've both spent the past year speaking to people for the podcast. And one of those people was a woman named Margot. Margot lived in Michigan, where abortion is banned after viability. And her hospital wouldn't perform an abortion after 24 weeks. You're telling me that if in two weeks you tell me that my baby has a fatal disease, you can't help me? She couldn't possibly make a decision about having an abortion in that moment. I knew I just didn't have enough information. Being so afraid of not being able to get an abortion later that you have an abortion even not know. Oh, God. No. But the thought of making her baby suffer down the line was also unbearable. There's obviously no medical reason for that, right? Like, all of the reasons for that happening are legal. Margot's experience happened back in 2014, but her story illustrates what many medical professionals and abortion advocates feared after Roe was overturned and what more states shortened the window to get an abortion. Julie, what do situations like Margot's reveal about the ways pregnancy is often more complicated than the law acknowledges? I think one thing that uh, anti-abortion lawmakers particularly did not really get is how common uh, problems in pregnancy are. Everyone assumes that, you know, this is, a, this is a very unusual thing that late in pregnancy something bad can happen. It's not that unusual. Miscarriages are extremely common um, that, you know, I think it's up to a third of pregnancies end on their own, uh, just, just never make it to term. So there are a lot of complications with pregnancy. And so we're seeing a lot of women suddenly in difficult situations, even as we pointed out, these are many of them wanted pregnancy women who've tried very hard to get pregnant, often at great expense for infertility treatment, um, and something tragic happens with the pregnancy, and then suddenly they're worried about being able to get health care that could save their life. Let's go back to the podcast. Gabby, you interviewed George Frampton. He's a former clerk for Justice Harry Blackman, and he helped invent the viability line that would become part of the legal basis for Roe v. Wade. It's always been vulnerable. But as long as it's out there, at least it's guaranteeing most people the right to an abortion. Yeah. And so you still feel that viability is the one that, that makes the most sense? No, not today. Why not? I don't have any particular pride in the brilliance of, you know, the original Roe v. Wade uh, decision. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I never really thought about the viability of viability. The judges and clerks who came up with this line admitted to not consulting with medical professionals about it. And even the term trimester was first used by a Supreme Court justice, not a doctor. According to the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists, there's no test or definite diagnosis to determine viability, and it's often left to a clinician's judgment. Gabby, where did they come up with this 24-week line? Yeah. um, The clerk who um, came up with first proposed viability to Justice Blackman um, was really looking at two interests that he believed um, existed in abortion law. You have the, as he described, the woman's interest. And then as he also described the state's interest in protecting fetal life. So the woman's right and the state interest in protecting fetal life. And he thought, well, these two interests are inherent in abortion law. So therefore, in order to balance them, we have to find a point in the middle. Um, Now, that is something that 
he in in declaring that those are two rights that that existed that that the state needed to balance he then said that um there needed to be a compromise compromise without even really thinking are those two rights that the that this you know the um justices actually do need to balance hmm. julie how has this idea of viability evolved now that it's been left to the states to decide their own time restrictions well, uh, you know, a number of states, and I know we're going to talk about this, uh, would like to declare, uh, not use not viability, but actually fertilization as the starting point for when a fetus becomes a human uh, entitled to protections. So, you know, really viability at this point is not very legally relevant. Um, and it is difficult. You know, we, we don't know. It's not just we don't know when the viability line is at, for each pregnancy, at what point that fetus could survive outside the womb. In most cases, we don't know when the pregnancy began. The, it, it, with the exception of things like in vitro fertilization, it's usually a period of several days or even several weeks. So you can't sort of mark a point in pregnancy uh, where viability is if you don't know what the beginning is. Um, it's just sort of the way pregnancy is measured by the medical community. So it's always been kind of a, of a fraught line, um, but it now, uh, in particular, it's even more difficult. We're discussing the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. We'll be back with more after this short break. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com slash NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This election season, you can expect to hear a lot of news, some of it meaningful, much of it not. Give the Up First podcast 15 minutes, sometimes a little less, and we'll help you sort it out what's going on around the world and at home. Three stories, 15 minutes, Up First every day. Listen every morning, wherever you get your podcasts. Changed a year since Roe v. Wade was overturned and the line that shaped abortion law for decades prior. Julie, after Roe was overturned, there was considerable momentum behind Democratic candidates. Abortion was a top issue in the 2022 midterm elections. Three-fourths of Democrats are opposed to the ruling. That's according to a recent poll from NPR and Marist. Where does that political momentum stand a year later? The momentum had always been with the uh, the anti-abortion side. They were the ones who were advocating for change and working hard. And I think the people who supported abortion rights thought, we have Roe v. Wade, we're safe, we can vote based on other things. And sort of slowly, incrementally, the anti-abortion side advanced until... As of last year, they won. And I think that woke up a lot of people who always supported abortion rights but never thought that they would need to do anything to act politically to ensure that they are there. And now that they are gone, many of those people are very, very angry. And poll after poll shows that the momentum is now with the abortion rights side. And people are saying it's a voting issue, which it has not traditionally been, and that it will affect how they vote in the next election. And as you mentioned, we saw this very strongly in the 2022 midterms. We saw it kind of surprisingly to a lot of people in Kansas last year uh, in a, a voter referendum where the, the abortion rights side actually won unexpectedly uh, in Kentucky. Um, so we've seen definitely people who never considered abortion to be a voting issue now becoming a voting issue. 
Julia, I want to talk a little bit about the language that's been used because both abortion rights advocates and anti-abortion people have have used the viability line in their arguments around whether abortion should be accessible or not. How have we seen both sides use that line? You know, it's interesting on on the left or on the, the, you know, pro-abortion rights, reproductive rights side, you know, Roe was seen as such a victory. It was something that um, they needed to hold on to. And so there was a real fear of calling a fetus a baby because it would possibly undo Roe. And, and, you know, even today, calling a fetus a baby is a slippery slope to the argument that, you know, um, life starts at conception and that a, a fetus is a person from the beginning that's protected under the Constitution. So that fear on the pro-abortion side um, of losing the Roe victory had prevented people from, from embracing all of the nuances of how people see their own pregnancies. Um, and on the right, you know, there were a lot of arguments about like why, you know, from from one day to the next, how does you know a, a fetus become a a baby? <laughs> it just it just suddenly like it just doesn't make biological or logical sense. And so on on you know the the anti-abortion side, viability was in you know in books and in, in you know kids were taught like this this doesn't make any sense, um, and that you know was a pretty compelling argument um, and and is where we are. Let's go back to the podcast. In this one, Gabby, you're speaking to Jill Lenz, a law professor at the University of Arkansas, and Greer Donnelly, a law professor at the University of Pittsburgh. For Jill, who lived in Texas at the time, a thing that so many pregnant people fear happened at almost nine months. They couldn't find a heartbeat. The nurses all left the room and I just let out this scream. Her son was stillborn. For Greer in Pittsburgh, the trouble came earlier in the pregnancy at the 20-week scan. The doctor basically told us that our son had a pretty profound brain anomaly that was preventing brain tissue from forming. Greer is a cancer survivor, so her pregnancy was already considered high risk. The first thing the doctor said was that some people in this situation choose to have an abortion. And someone once told me, That people faced with this decision can choose life for their child or they can choose peace, but they can't choose both. And what does it mean as a mother when you have to make that choice between those two things, right? When you want desperately to give your kid both of them. But, you know, for me and for many women who came before me, I chose peace, Jill and Greer are abortion rights lawyers working together to find a better legal framework to replace the viability line. And it's based on their own experiences with abortion and pregnancy loss. Gabby, what legal framework are they proposing? Yeah, Jill and Greer wrote a um, – Jill is actually a, a stillbirth um, legal scholar, and Greer is a reproductive rights legal scholar. And they wrote a paper, um, an, an, a law review article, um, that proposes that the state should not be involved at all in um, in abortion and in saying when the state has an interest in protecting um, in protecting a fetus because because for every per- pregnant person, you know, that is something that 
they think um, the pregnant person should be trusted to make that decision, that every pregnant person values pregnancy differently. And what they say is, you know, that doesn't have to sacrifice um, on the abortion on the abortion right side. That doesn't have to sacrifice conversation about fetal value. If we understand pregnancy in terms of how the pregnant person understands pregnancy and how the pregnant person values pregnancy, you know, that supports people in um, in in you know stillbirth and miscarriage, and and you know you can have these difficult conversations about you know a pregnant person feels like they're that their baby is that their fetus is a baby and they have an abortion and that's still right or they don't feel it's a baby and they have an abortion it's still right they have a miscarriage and the abortion rights community can support that you know a lot of Jill's work focuses on how stillbirth um, legal uh, scholarship in particular is siloed from abortion rights because um, you know there's a lot of um, concern about talking about fetal value within the law. And, you know, they say we can we can get the state out of the way with abortion and still as a reproductive rights movement talk about, um, you know, how do we support people through very, you know, a variety of pregnancy outcomes. How how has that proposal been received by people on both sides of the debate? Um, you know, I, I, I mean, I'm, I haven't heard from particularly people who don't support abortion on their papers. So, um I, I assume that it would be that that's not act, that's not an adequate uh, framework, but you know there has been some conversation. Um, well, first of all, some people are like, "Oh my God, that is that that's that's a that's such a an innovative framework," and they're like, "No, this is actually incredibly intuitive. This is how people see." Their pregnancies, um, and then you also have people on the abor- on, who support abortion say the state really shouldn't be involved at all in any you know valuation of of fetal life, even when we're talking about stillbirth. Um, so that's a valid um, you know criticism to or or a valid conversation to to add. Um, you know they are working on a paper to another paper to to address all of these different perspectives. So I look forward to reading that as well. We're discussing the one-year anniversary of the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade. We'll be back with more after this short break. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top-10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. A member FDIC. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. I recently became pregnant and was very excited and planning on keeping it until I got to the doctor and found out that along with the baby, there was a very, very large fibroid. And they informed me that because of my age and other factors, that it would be a very dangerous and difficult pregnancy. My partner had already been through one of those in where he lost his wife and I had to make the difficult decision to terminate and didn't want to go through with a dangerous pregnancy. And had there not, had there been laws in place banning uh, abortions, I would have not had that option. And so I'm very grateful, even though it was a very difficult decision, I'm very grateful I had that option. Thanks for that message. Julia, how would allowing pregnant people to set their own timelines around when they need or want an abortion that's rooted in their, their personal and medical experience, 
change the conversation we've been having for decades around abortion rights? Yeah, I think Roe um, started a conversation around, you know, the state having an interest in balancing these, you know, the the right of the pregnant person and the right of the fetus to life. Um, you know, the state being in charge of of deciding when to value a fetus. Um, you know, it would be kind of revolutionary to say, you know, the state doesn't really, isn't equipped to value that. The parent is. Uh, and what if we let parents uh, or, you know, pregnant people be the ones to value a fetus and to tell the state, you know, or, or just, you know, not value it themselves, be able to um, say when, when the fetus, um, when the loss of a fetus means something to them. But Julie, given that abortion rights have been rolled back at an unprecedented pace this year, what chance does this approach actually have of, of gaining traction and potentially becoming law? Well, there's obviously, you know, a concern. Now we've, we have this energized group of voters, and we'll see whether these voters can produce enough votes either in their states or in the federal legislature to make changes. Right now we're at kind of a standoff. Um, there, are, You know, the anti-abortion movement has done an excellent job of electing people that support their side, and the abortion rights movement is now struggling to catch up. So is there going to be, you know, major legislation coming? Well, not unless they get 60 votes in the Senate or they get rid of the filibuster. Um, And we know that the anti-abortion side is uh, gearing up to try and create some sort of national ban, either a, uh, you know, a national limit of perhaps 15 weeks. Um, And they are, and we have another faction of the anti-abortion movement trying to get states to declare, uh, you know, uh, persons at fertilization, which would complicate all kinds of things, including in vitro fertilization and birth control. So, I mean, this fight still continues. There's nothing over about it. Let's go back to the podcast now. This clip is part of a conversation with Greer Donnelly, the law professor at the University of Pittsburgh, who chose to get an abortion after experiencing severe complications with her pregnancy. For Greer in Pittsburgh, her experience led her to write a paper which made the case that abortion should be a parental right. But that necessitates, right, that there is a child for whom the parents can make decisions about. And she got a similar reaction. I got a lot of pushback from abortion rights people because they did not like that I was using parental frames to talk about abortion. What Uh, did that pushback look like? It was basically, this really scares me because it's going to create a slippery slope to personhood. You know, I think there is every reason to be terrified of personhood. Because once a fetus is a person under the law at any point in pregnancy, it will trump the woman's rights over and over again. So, Julie, first explain what is fetal personhood? Well, fetal personhood is a concept that uh, the anti-abortion movement has been working on for a couple of decades now. It's nothing new. And basically it was, as Greer Donnelly just said, the declaration that a fetus is a person from conception forward and has all of the rights of a person, um, which... As, as I mentioned, creates a whole vast series of complications, including some like 
if, if, if a fetus is a person, can a pregnant woman drive in an HOV lane? <laughs> because now mm-hmm. two people. Um, uh, but also who belongs to, uh, to uh, fertilized embryos that are used for in vitro fertilization? Do they all have to be protected? What if frequently in in vitro fertilization, they implant a number of, uh, of embryos and then sometimes uh, they reduce, the, if there's too many of them take, then they reduce the pregnancy. That would be killing people under personhood. So I think people you know, don't understand that it's very simple to say and it's very complicated to understand. Because under law right now, for instance, if you're going through IVF, those embryos are considered property, Correct. That's right, and we've seen lots of uh, cases of divorce uh, where the you know who gets the who gets custody of the embryos. So it's then the, obviously personhood would eliminate that embryos would no longer be possible to be property because they would be people under the Fourteenth Amendment. Then um, you know that basically outlawed slavery. They would now be independent people with their own set of rights, separate from the pregnant person. You know, Julie, we've talked about the legal landscape, but I, I want to turn our eyes towards the medical landscape. How are doctors and other care providers adjusting to this this change in, in the abortion landscape? Well, it's difficult. And as I mentioned at the top, we've seen doctors, some of them closing up and, you know, leaving certain states with bans because they're afraid they can't practice medicine the way, you know, under the oath that they have taken to do no harm. We're also seeing graduating uh, medical students resisting going to states with bans. Um, so, you know, you could see that over a period of years, there would be a problem for women getting care, not just abortion care, but getting any kind of reproductive health care if the, the people who are, you know, going to, to practice there aren't going there and are going someplace else instead. So this has, this has ramifications well beyond abortion. We got this email from Susie who says, I think one reason the definition of abortion isn't clear is that maternal fetal medicine has made so many advances in the past 50 years. They now can operate on fetuses in utero, something that was unimaginable in the 70s. It's clear that the politicians who rely on slogans and simplicity cannot deal with the complexities of providing health care to women in 2023. They want health care like it's 1974. We cannot go back. Gabby, how much did that advancement in medicine and and the complexity of of pregnancy itself come into play in your reporting? Yeah, when I talked to Justice Blackman's clerk and also um, a judge on the Second Circuit who um, was actually the first judge to um, write viability into abortion law one year before Roe v. Wade, um, they, they did not they don't they don't consult doctors that's not they they can't they they don't do that that's all they have are the um the what they call briefs am, um amicus briefs which are briefs supporting one side or the other um to look at so sometimes doctors support you know doctors um submit briefs but that's really all they have and um they're also not thinking about the judge that I that I talked to in the Second Circuit, he's not thinking about how this law may be used in the future. All he said was, um, or how it may be interpreted um, 50 years down the line. He said, all I said is I all, he's, all they have are the facts in front of them, and that's what they have to decide. So there really isn't much like trying to think of all of the different, as he called, fact patterns of how that law may be used, which, um, which is, a, I think, a, something that's worth thinking about when we're thinking about why judges are drawing 
lines in the way that they are and, and what they're thinking about. Julie, as you described it at the beginning of the program, this is a very uh, chaotic environment right now in the U.S. around abortion access. A year on, what are you watching for next? It, it really depends on what state you're in. That determines your access to abortion care. And, and as I mentioned, your access to other sorts of care, um, you know, if you're a woman and looking for any kind of reproductive health care. But yeah, I'm, you know, I'm looking obviously to see what happens in the next election, um, to see whether this newly energized abortion rights electorate comes forward and actually does what it says it will do, or whether the anti-abortion forces, they're not stopping. They want to, they want all these state bans. They want a national ban. They want fetal personhood. They're not shy about this. Uh, and in the meantime, as we've sort of discussed, we've got, you know, state lawmakers and federal lawmakers essentially practicing medicine without a license. Well, I want to close on this moment from the podcast. If you don't mind me asking, how far along are you? When I talked to Greer for this story, she was pregnant. Actually, very pregnant. I'm, gosh, it's always so weird because it's like I'm eight months pregnant, I think, but I'm 35 weeks. A few weeks later, I heard the news. She had a healthy baby girl. Pregnancy is really hard. It's really hard. It requires enormous sacrifice of your body, of your emotions. So why do we not trust women, right? What are we worried about? And what if we just trust them? Um, And we trust them to feel grief. We trust them to make the decisions for birth. We trust them to make decisions for abortion. We trust them to just, we just trust them. (laughs) That's from WNYC's More Perfect podcast. With us today, Julie Longoria, the host of the podcast, and Gabrielle Burbe. She's a producer. The two-part podcast is in their fourth season, along with episodes on Clarence Thomas and how journalists cover the Supreme Court. Also with us, Julie Rovner, the chief Washington correspondent for Kaiser Health News. Thanks to you all. Today's producer was Haley Blassingame. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as Black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.